there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. United States Air Force Space Command, which may be the coolest name for a military organization ever, was founded. The very first issue of USA Today was published. And on TV, a fresh-faced kid who had just played a sweaty dork in Class of 84 made his first appearance on the sitcom that would launch him to stardom. Michael J. Fox and Family Ties weren't the only thing worth talking about, though, in September of 1982. Hi, I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome to 80s All Over. And uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Mm, hello, Drew. Welcome to September of 1982. I feel your pain. Man. I want to thank everybody out there who is what we call a completist, because you are now at what we will freely admit is kind of a dip. Uh, normally, these happen in January, <laughs> January or February. Uh, this dip is happening in September. And Drew, why, why do you think it is that we got such a, uh, a mixture of both uh, damaged goods and weird dramas in September? At least in January, there was, they, they were like burning stuff off because the new year was beginning and the big movies were still in theaters. And they were hoping to catch like a little extra coin. August, September, they gave up on. They figured that nobody was in theaters. Nobody was going to movies. So whatever. And so the the result is you get this truly scorched earth feeling for the next couple of years right around this time. Back in this time, at least in the early 80s, the summer movie season was June and July. That was it. That, that was. And, and August would be some. August would be like the burn-offs, but it, the movies that didn't quite work, but they were still summer movies, but they didn't really work. First so half of release. August might have one or two good B-movies or a legitimately high-end popcorn movie. And then, pow, you hit this wall. This month, it was like getting punched in the face. Let's just jump right in, man. Well, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do first. I just want to say up front, we got a little smug. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, I believe in the last episode, we had just talked about how few mistakes we had made recently, how relatively few boners had been pulled. Relatively being the word. Relatively. And now we have boners positively raining down upon us. Both hands full of boners. Scott, I asserted that Dolly Parton wrote, I will always love you for the Bestival Horror House in Texas. That was incorrect. It was written earlier by her for her mentor, Porter Wagner, when he stopped performing with her. And it went to the top of the charts in 1974. Then she recorded it again for the movie. It was another hit for her in 1982. And of course, then Whitney Houston conquered the world with it. Uh, I believe you said that Ron Howard directed Eat My Dust. He actually directed the follow-up to it, 
Grand Theft Auto, yes. Which I always love that the most insane scare the shit out of your parents video game franchise of all time owes its title to a movie by Opie Cunningham. I forget which of us got it wrong, but we said Jose Ferrer, uh, or we said Mel Ferrer, and it was Jose Ferrer. Uh, but I do that all the time. I get my Ferrer's confused. I get my wins confused. It just happens. Carradine's, Keech's. Carradine's are a bitch. That's a fun topic is which siblings do you never mix up, like the Baldwins? Randy and Dennis Quaid. There is no confusing those two. Julia and Eric Roberts. <laughs> well... Depends on the movie. And then uh, the very last boner that we pulled, we said that Louis Gossett Jr. was nominated for the woman-hating epic, An Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, that is correct. However, he also won the Academy Award for that role, and we did not mention that. So congratulations, Mr. Gossett Jr. That is an obvious oversight, and he is far and away the most energetic in life. Oh, he's the best part of the movie. And when he does his kung fu, he looks like it's crazy. He has 17-foot arms. I would not want to fight Louis Gossett Jr. You know who else I would not want to fight, Drew? Matt Dillon. Although I probably could have taken him when he starred in Liar's Moon. I thought that this had, like, a pedigree of some sort, and I mistook this for something better. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I like, thought that, didn't like, Horton Foot write that? Isn't that a play... Yes, yes, exactly. Was this based on a play or was it co executive produced by Coppola or or does it have like a, <laughs> a, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning source? Nope. It is a just very pedantic, very basic romantic drama about a girl, a guy, her disapproving papa. I kind of hoped that it would be like a little charmer like Tex and it is not. He looks 11. I don't know if this was made before Tex, but he is super gawky. These, like, 19-year-olds, they have, like, the insight and the world weariness and the cynicism of, like, 45-year-olds, as in, like, the people who wrote this movie. <laughs> Matt Dillon, to me, seems always seemed like a city kid, always seemed like a kid who was a little bit dangerous and a little bit streetwise, and maybe it was because my bodyguard was my first exposure to him, but that's the Matt Dillon that I thought of. And there was this weird era right around here in Tex where they were kind of selling the hick version of Matt Dillon because that's a lot of what was getting made. I don't buy it. It's kind of like when we saw Bruce Davison and Bruno Kirby play Hicks in Eat My Grits. Kiss in, My Grits. Kiss My Grits. Eat, eat, yeah. eat My Grits was the sequel. Do you want to get more complaints? <laughs> <laughs> wow eat my grits is a little more aggressive that is if the, i don't think they would have said that on alice that sounds filthy anyway here's the bottom line the only people who remember or even slightly admire liar's moon are staunch and dedicated fans of matt dillon and to those people i say god bless you because he is a great actor for decades now if you really like young matt dillon and you've seen it all i guess liar's moon is there put that on the poster <laughs> If, you, if you're also a huge fan of things you've never seen before, how about Robert Yorick investigating cattle mutilations in Endangered Species? Where they came from is unknown. What they did was unheard of. If they aren't stopped now, there may be no hope for the future. Endangered species. It's not science fiction anymore. Boah, this was one of those, 
the theme of this episode is going to be, I was bored by this movie for very different reasons. How is this an Alan Rudolph movie? I don't know. This feels like maybe Alan Rudolph got called on a Friday and said, we just fired our director. Can you be here on a Monday? Maybe. And it's it's just after Rhodey. It's like, I don't know who he was at this point as a uh, director, but it is bizarre that this is the same guy who did Trouble in Mind and the Moderns. and I think in 1982, this would be like considered like a jump to the A-list for an indie director. So Endangered Species, Robert Urich and Joe Beth Williams investigating cattle mutilations. And the movie kind of sort of touches on the idea that it might be something supernatural or otherworldly. It's not. <laughs> They like to touch on that, and then you get to put the movie in the sci-fi category. This is weirdly dull, because I kept waiting for it to get goofy, and it just stays dull. Scott, can you tell me the link between the two films that we started the episode with? No. Hoyt Axton appears in both of them. God, what a great voice. Uh, Hoyt Axton, best known as the lovable dad from Gremlins. So, when I was working at Dave's Video... Uh, Robert Urich was one of the customers that had been going, going there for a long time. It was a giant Laserdisc customer, loved buying Laserdiscs, big fan. Came in all the time, and they treated him like a king. Uh, the owners of the store were very good friends with him. He had been with them since the very first location they'd ever been with. So I start working. It's my second day. He calls, and when I pick up the phone... I'm new to L.A., so I really had not learned yet how to behave. And I pick up the phone, and he goes, hello, this is Robert Urich. And without thinking, I went, hi, Bob. There was a long pause, long pause. And then he goes, put Dave on. That was my introduction to Robert Urich. Um, it got better, but uh, that was that was not a great way to introduce myself to him. This movie, um, and we'll get to a few other ones in the decade, is proof positive that there is no script that can ruin Joe Beth Williams. And she is a sparkling diamond. In She's movie. actually interesting. And if there was a movie just about her character, her trying to deal with this all male sort of cabal of cattle owners and the, you know, the American West and investigators. But yeah. Robert Urich is on vacation and he's a drunken, like out of a shitty paperback novel at New York cop. And so he like bulls his way into this thing it really does feel like his character does not belong in the movie and keeps taking focus away from the far more interesting Joe Beth Williams. This movie could have been called How to Mansplain About Cattle Mutilations. You know, there's a conspiracy, and there's this whole sort of subgenre of shadowy conspiracy thrillers in the late 70s and the early 80s. And I wish I liked this one more because I like that genre. I honestly think. Minus Robert Urich, it might have been the movie. You like the cattle mutilation genre? <laughs> no, no, just like the shadowy conspiracy genre, like where where somebody steps in it and little by little realizes, oh, okay, people are making a lot of money and I'm going to get killed. How many times uh, did you try to watch this one on HBO as a kid? Because I think I tried to watch it twice. A couple of times, and uh, I don't think I ever made it through it. And this time around, it's a case of... If somebody had had the perspective to take a step back, look at what was happening as they were kind of like putting it together and just realize you cut this sixth finger off the hand and maybe the movie's not terrible. But there's Bob just right out there. All right. So I have no segue. I don't believe there is a segue. If you could make a segue from Endangered Species to our next film, I'd be fairly impressed. I guess the only way to do it is say, and then there's Antonioni. I'm embarrassed a little to admit that when you hear certain film names you get a little intimidated and i'll tell you people like truffaut intimidate me and uh people like antonioni intimidate me of those two 
I think Truffaut will be your jam. I don't think Antonioni will be. Because I think Truffaut is a guy that you'll get pretty easily once you get into it. Antonioni, to me, is very much the art house director. If you want to talk about what art house cinema looked like in the 60s and the 70s and sort of the experimental European edge of art house cinema, it's Michelangelo Antonioni. All I really knew about Antonioni growing up was that Martin Scorsese was a fan. And there was a time a couple of years ago where I jumped with both feet into a pool of film noir and I watched probably 75 of them in a year. And I will do that with the French New Wave and, and other uh, older films that I am a little bit embarrassed to say that I don't know much about. Quick version of it is there's two different eras of Antonioni's work. There's the early stuff that he did that was all European, and that's stuff like La Ventura and Le Eclis and La Notte. And then he did the movies that kind of were crossover hits, and those were Blow Up and Zabriskie Point and The Passenger. And Blow Up is a turning point between the art house and the mainstream. That's where America started kind of flirting with the art house being the mainstream. Zabriskie Point was sold to the counterculture and was sold based on like the soundtrack by Pink Floyd. And then The Passengers, a Jack Nicholson movie, which at that point was about as mainstream as you could get. Would you call this identification of a woman one of Antonioni's relatively lesser films? When this played can, they gave it what they called the 35th anniversary award, which sounds to me like they went, I don't know, give him something. Just make something up. It's Antonioni, for God's sake. And that's kind of the way the film feels to me. It is a rambling a guy falls in and out of bed with various women and he is threatened by guys and there is this weird sort of machismo thing going on in the movie and it's one of his most sort of ramshackle films. If if you don't laugh at a joke from a master comedian, you immediately think, oh, that's, that's on me. Uh, that's my mistake. Because I'm watching this film and it does not seem like brilliant epic classic cinema and i'm thinking this could have just been one of a master's lesser efforts it's from that weird subgenre, and there was a lot of italian guys who did this he makes a movie about an italian filmmaker having a crisis about love and romance but it's not at all biographical i am not in love with that genre i'm not in love with that uh, oh everything is on and it is so hard and do i have sex with this beautiful italian woman or do i go stand on the palazzo and have sex with this beautiful italian woman i couldn't tell if that was meant to be dryly satirical or just no that's his literal dilemma there's a point here where it feels like he's looking back at his own stuff and it's not the same kind of sort of funhouse that Fellini does where Fellini is clearly playing with his earlier films and clearly playing with what you know about his work I don't feel like you need to know his work to see this movie but I also don't feel like this movie is terribly representative of him at his best so I, I certainly wouldn't call it a bad film but I went in knowing who made it maybe I walked in with like these lofty expectations as if everything a great filmmaker makes is brilliant which of course is highly untrue it's interesting. This next film is also a European filmmaker working in American populist mode. And it is from that same sort of burst of American zoetrope creativity that we've talked about a few times already with the escape artist and one from the heart. And this is one of the last of them from that burst of stuff. What did you think of Hammett? This tough old bird is about two and a half hops ahead of everybody else. The old bird pulls off a grand slam and leaves town with a million bucks. At least you didn't hit the money. I didn't name it the money. He gave the world a new kind of American detective story. Is this pure invention? Or do you draw your material from life? <sighs> Real life, Fong. He 
was a master of action. Now there's a third body in the morgue you might be interested in. Intrigue. Might I ask whom? And suspense. He created the Maltese Falcon, Sam Spade, and the Thin Man. Who the hell are you now? Hammett the writer or Hammett the detective? But he didn't write his greatest mystery. He lived it. Francis Ford Coppola presents... Hammett, starring Frederick Forrest, Peter Boyle, and Mary Lou Henner, directed by Vin Vendors. It's not like in one of your stories, is it? Never is like a story. This is a fictitious story based on a real person. And I'm, again, a little embarrassed to admit that for the first five, ten minutes, I thought maybe it was actually based on reality. And no, it is not. It is. I have a real fetish for Los Angeles and California-based crime fiction, especially period fiction. Hammett, Raymond Chandler, those guys are, for me, fairly sacred text. This movie should ring every bell I have. And the fact that I just don't care for it very much, that is a real testament to how far they missed the mark. I get the idea, which is Hammett is, he's done being a Pinkerton detective, he's starting to try and write detective fiction and figure out how to be on the page, the guy that he wants to be, and he gets caught up in a case that essentially points the way to the stuff that he'll eventually write that will define him. Great idea. There's nothing wrong with that. Kafka is a great example of this. Yes, that's there you go. You got a good And I think Kafka is a better execution because there is something about the way Soderbergh creates that heightened Prague. I still don't love Kafka, but I think Kafka is closer to the target because it makes you feel like you are reading his work. I don't feel like this is a plot that's worthy of Hammett. Hammett's plots were really fascinating. This was something that I think is important about him. Hammett, I think, wrote about the compromise that was inherent to doing detective work, the idea that if you did this stuff, you got your hands dirty, no matter who you were representing. And it was almost impossible to stay clean and do this. And I love that. That's what it's going for. Uh, it is trying to be a 1940s-ish film noir. And it almost feels like Coppola's like, hey, I, I love hard-boiled film noir stories too. Option this novel by a gentleman named Joe Gores. And I've not read the novel. I assume it, it's a bit more uh, convincing because everything at Zoetrope was shot in a studio. This movie really, even during its exteriors, especially in its exteriors, feels like it was shot in a studio. This is a movie that if this was a good movie or if this was a popular movie, we would be having the same conversation about this film that we always had about Poltergeist. Because Vim Vendors, who was brought in to direct the film, he shot this film... Coppola went back in and said, throw most of this movie out. And they started over. And there was a second round of shooting that was essentially a full shoot. How snake bitten is American Zoetrope so far? We've covered one from the heart and the escape artist. And next year we'll cover uh, Gray Fox, which is not bad. But so far, you could almost make a film about American Zoetrope in the early 80s. And it would be almost like the, the disaster artist. It would be like a comedy of errors. You got to know that he hires Vim Vendors out of a place of respect, like he loves his work, but then ends up going head to head with him. And Vendors has said that he shot everything. There are other people who say that most of the reshoots were Coppola, but Vendors agrees that the version that you see here is no almost nothing from the original round of shooting. To have gone twice and end up with this. Not that it's terrible. It just feels artificial. And, and it's a little bit flaccid. Frederick Forrest is not bad. 
Peter Boyle, of course, I don't think could be bad. Mary Lou Henner, you know, she's okay. I wish I loved it. I wish this was one of those forgotten gems that you could say, oh, guess what we found? If you're into this kind of story, dig into the real stuff. Get some real film noir in your diet. Now we're moving on to perhaps the best film of 1982. Oh, dude, don't even. (laughs) You know, this makes no sense. This literally makes no sense at all. But like trying to get through this movie, I resented you. you I I was angry at you. What did I I do? I didn't make this movie. You were the one that like if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have to watch this movie. You should have been mad at me. Let me just say, if I thought and I believe I teased this when we talked about six pack, if I thought Kenny Rogers was a terrible lead for a film. I was begging for the lightning bolt charisma of Kenny Rogers to deliver me from the unending bear-like horror of Yes, Giorgio. The whole world applauds when Giorgio opens his mouth. This is the greatest singer in the world. But it takes a gorgeous lady doctor to close it. Not afraid of a shot, are you? And open it. MGM presents Luciano Pavarotti. You must promise you will not fall in love with me. Catherine Harold. I have no intention of falling in love with you. Yes, Giorgio. A glorious, uproarious love story. Rated PG. This is the worst. This mo- The only thing that could have made this movie worse is if John Derrick directed it. That's literally the only thing. This movie should have been released under its original title, Oh My God, You Horrible Thing, Leave Catherine Harold Alone. This is a movie about a world-famous opera singer married with two children who thinks he can fuck everything that moves, who falls in love with the throat doctor who takes care of him when he, he has laryngitis. When he has psychosomatic laryngitis, who cures him with fake injections. I wish it had just been air bubbles directly into his fat fucking heart. I hate Luciano Pavarotti in this movie so much that it has never, ever gone away. I can't see him without thinking of this film and getting irrationally angry. It's a horrible movie. Horrible. For years, when I that like when the title, whenever it would happen to flit by, if I'm looking at a movie book, or, or because nobody ever discusses this movie, but whenever <laughs> the title would just happen to flit by in some weird context, all I could remember was Roger Ebert's video review. I wonder if anybody on the set realized that it was going to get all these bad laughs. And then I hope that they thought it was funny because if they didn't, they're really dumb. Uh-huh. I also had some more questions when I watched this film. Who wants to see the great Pavarotti sit on a pie or get into, <laughs> or get into a food fight or be called tons of fun by a child? This actually happened in this picture. I have the answer, though. Apparently, the people who put up the money for this film wanted to see all that. And maybe that's because they thought that they would have to make Pavarotti cute to make him sell to middle America. Well, his music sells better than Yes, Giorgio did. This film is an insult to opera, to Pavarotti, and to us. There's almost a feeling of offense after a while. Like, Here's the thing, especially with the climate that we're in right now, what consent is and how important it is to respect people's boundaries. This movie is a giant off-color joke about the grabbiest uncle you have ever seen. He rolls through the world as if he is allowed to be grotesque with everybody. And it's almost like when he walks out of frame, if we lingered for 10 seconds, everybody would look at each other like, what the fuck was that? 
But we never see that moment because he is in a delusional bubble that exists in his little Italian town. And then he comes to America as if he is to be treated that way everywhere. The movie literally exists just to be a vehicle for a now popular pop star. And if if Hard to Hold starring Rick Springfield grabbed uh, $8 million in two weekends, that's a win for the producers, you know. So that's why they make these disposable junky pop star vehicles based on the novel by Ann Piper is an actual credit in this film. <laughs> it's like Sid and Marty Croft's most grotesque character <laughs> sexually harassing Catherine Harold for 95 minutes. Do you want to name your, do you want to quote your favorite line in the movie? Cause I know what it is. You are a thirsty plant. Feeney can water you. Oh, I don't want to be watered on by Feeney. No, it's nauseating dialogue. Nauseating. And the movie was directed by the man who made Planet of the Fucking Apes. No. No. <laughs> no. All right, speaking of disgusting, we're going to move on. Uh, I don't know if we well, certainly didn't cover the Amityville Horror because it, it came out in 1979. But uh, I will give a little context in that for years I thought it was a classic on par Certainly not like The Exorcist, but maybe on par with The Omen, you know, like a B-minus classic. I revisited it when the remake came out several years back and realized I was mistaken. This is a, <laughs> you know, the Amityville Horror is a, a passable at best if you're in a good mood. Yeah. CD is a, a word yeah, I yeah. use I, I think it. it. I think I'm more enamored with its best moments than I am with the film as a whole. So this is a prequel. Uh, and as most people know, the Amityville story is uh, alleged to be based on actual events. And this is the movie that now delves into and exploits these allegedly true events about the DeFeo family and the, the horrible crimes that led to the alleged haunting that occurred in the first film. The Lutzes escaped with their lives, but the previous owners weren't so lucky. Heavenly Father, bless our new home. And watch over us as we become a part of this For the Montelli community. family, it was their dream house until it turned into a nightmare. <laughs> Amityville 2, The Possession. It's a gross movie. This is gross in the sense that the first movie is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and it's based on a book written by a guy who was clearly just trying to unload a piece of shitty real estate. The movie is enormously successful as junk and is fine for what it is. But you can't believe a single second of the Amityville horror. There's nothing about it that's real. What is real is that somebody was murdered in that house. To make an entire movie, to go back and do this movie, all built around that murder, and then try and layer stuff into there, that's where I find it offensive. I'm not offended by the Amityville horror. I'm offended by Amityville 2, The Possession. What, what offends you more? The fact that they're exploiting actual murders to make a shitty horror film or that it is egregiously bad? It's the fact that they are telling what they call the true story of those murders and they drop in demon possession and make it grotesque exploitation. Yeah, incest uh, all over the place. It's an offensive, ugly film. It has its moments. Uh, it has a little bit of atmosphere, and the fact that it is so nihilistic and mean-spirited, that does add a little edge to the few legitimately creepy parts and, and shocking moments. It will make you genuinely feel unpleasant by the end of it. Yeah, any film where the lead is Burt Young is bound to do that, Drew. Burt Young always looks like he smells like ham. 
Wet ham. Burt Young looks like he's going for the world record sweating record. Yeah. Burt Young looks like he hasn't slept since 1953. Burt Young looks like a fairy turned a mushroom <laughs> into a man. <laughs> uh, we we had two Hoyt Axton films this week. We also have two films with Diane Franklin this week, written by Tommy Lee Wallace, who we will talk about a little later in this year, uh, because Tommy Lee Wallace, not an untalented cat. Not at all. Uh, if this film has any fondness among the horror, uh, old school horror heads, I, I think it might be just because of a, again, a handful of isolated moments that are pretty good. And I think that's one of those things you got to warn somebody before they watch something like this, that this movie's kind of a wallow. We now come to one of the most infamous money losers of all time, a film that I had never seen prior to last week. It's like one of those feathers in your cap if you can sit down and make it all the way through Inchon. There's a reason that the only way you can find this right now is broken into pieces on YouTube. And it is because it was financed by the Unification Church uh, founded by Sun Young Moon, which, you know, a cult. There's really no other way to put it. If you were a cult leader of a religious organization that you thought was legitimate and you were going to invest millions upon millions of dollars into a film, yes. why would it be a war movie? Why wouldn't it be a movie about religion or tolerance or freedom or friendship or something? You would have to ask the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, and he founded the Unification Church in the 50s. Uh, the movie deals with the period in which MacArthur landed in South Korea in uh, 1950. It is meant to be a sprawling, romantic, dramatic epic. It features a huge international cast like uh, Ben Gazzara and Tashira Mufune and Richard Roundtree and Laurence Olivier. We've talked about bad Laurence Olivier performances, but truly, this is him taking someone's money, looking him in the eye and saying, I'm going to give you something. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but here it comes. This is a plumber taking your check, banging a pipe with a wrench, and leaving your house. Perfect description. It is robbery. It takes place during the Korean War, not World War II. I know you mentioned World War II, but just to avoid any more boner alerts. Obviously, I think of MacArthur. I think of MacArthur as a giant World War II figure, but this is starting in 1950, so it's once he is landing in Korea and then everything that results from that. You, you mentioned Richard Roundtree? I did. How about Rex Reed? I did not mention that Rex Reed is in this. And dude, the idea that David Jansen and Rex Reed are just the journalists in this movie. <laughs> like the Greek chorus of some sort. Wow. And All right. And the main problem with the film, beyond all that, and it's directed by Terrence Young, who directed some damn good Bond films. The action sequences are virtually indecipherable. We all understand the grammar of film editing, even if we don't know how to articulate it. This film is like random shots of cannons going off and then people on a hill fall down. It is Ed Woodian. This was made by um, Sung Myung Moon, like I said, and a newspaper publisher. He was the guy who wrote this thing. All the choices made on this movie were made by consultation with a psychic, Gene Dixon. That's how they they were making decisions on this movie. Let's, re let's like reiterate that again. The producer of the film hired psychic Gene Dixon <laughs> to try and reach MacArthur from beyond the grave to get his approval on the film. That is a certifiable fact. Also certifiable. Anybody who invested money in this piece of garbage because it cost allegedly almost 50 million, 45 million in 1982 is like 200 and 
something now. It is insanely stupid money to spend on a movie, even if you were making Superman. And it made how much, Drew? Oh, my God. As as I understand it, less than a million dollars? It was a disaster. And this is one of those movies that they pulled and pulled then they... Pulled from theaters. Yeah. Do people, like, get... I, I I barely remember that because that's, that's a practice that really went out of practice. <laughs> When's the last time something in theaters got pulled? I think the last time I remember them actually pulling something to do anything to it was maybe Varsity Blues. Uh, if you are interested in the most infamously bad films of the 80s, or if you want to see what 40-some million dollars of toilet paper looks like, I'm glad I watched it because it's now, you know, one of these infamous films. And I'm humiliated, on the other hand, because I've now seen Ing Chan, but I've not seen, you know, half of Truffaut's films. <laughs> and now we move from a film that starts with INC to another film that starts with INC. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Scott's going to take a moment because he just pulled something. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard of the succubus. Now it's time for the incubus. Galen Village. Tranquil. Quiet. A nice place to live. <laughs> but something has gone wrong. Look at the bruises on the kid's neck. His spine was crushed like a piece of balsa wood. When the sun goes down, something stalks the streets of Galen Village. Something silent. Something lethal. Something or someone is killing the people of Galen. The Incubus. This is a perfect example of the kind of film that John Cassavetes made in order to pay for the movies that he directed. John Cassavetes looks shamefaced in this. It's a dry Canadian horror procedural about a small town hit by a brutal wave of, guess what? Rape monster. The suspect may be something supernatural. Like a rape monster, maybe. Yeah, it's not quite as tacky as I've made it out to be because we've dealt with some horror films that shoot rape like it's fucking disco dancing uh but it's not very engaging the ending is not very satisfying if you've ever wanted to watch a movie in which guys have a discussion about how there was an uncomfortable amount of semen inside of a dead body this is the movie for you i it's just if you're going to handle sexual assault and rape in a, in a movie even a, a, a cheesy little horror movie should have a little bit of class this one is you know again it, it doesn't leer into grindhouse territory but it also moves like a slug it doesn't have enough like scumbag kick to like tell you, oh, well, it's horrible and I'm revolted by it. I'm not. It's just. Eh, eh. You know what I'm revolted by? A 1979 film called Growing Pains that was re-released in September of 1982 called Homework. This is barely more professional than pornography. Like most movie geeks in the 80s, I think in probably 88 or 89, I think me and my friends had like a binge of, well, we'd already seen a lot of these teen sex comedies just by happenstance and being movie geeks, but there's a bunch we haven't seen. And we probably over the course of a month rented the lowest ones, just the hard bodies. And I'm pretty sure this one was in the batch and it ain't funny. I don't think it's a comedy. They play it out to be like most of these movies. It's about a teenage boy 
having an affair with his friend's mom. This this premise would be retreaded uh, next year, slightly better in class. And it might be the only film I've ever seen. I'm sure it is that co-stars both Wings Hauser and Carrie Snodgrass. I have almost nothing to say about it except for it's largely in focus. Who's the big star? Who's on the, who's on the VHS cover? Joan Collins, and you would never know that she is anybody anyone ever gave a shit about based on this movie. Um, there is no indication that she has any charisma or that she is somebody you'd watch in anything else. This and the next one, and we might as well just jump right into it because I have so little to say about both. I mentioned Squeeze Play, which is a very similar in, in tone and style to the tiresome, sloppy sex farce called Waitress. Waitress is about young people who work in restaurants while they pursue other careers. Are you getting all this? Go, go, Daddy. Please, please, you wouldn't really make me be a... Waitress. Yes, Waitress is a laugh riot that's good, clean, fun. Where's the cash? Oh, that's right, Jerry. Treat me, love. I love it. Waitress, come see the film that's packing them in all over the country. Drop what you're doing. <laughs> see Waitress. It's the movie everyone is rushing to see. Early trauma production, a really flimsy excuse on which to hang ancient sex jokes and a lots of bouncing boobs, just like uh, softcore porn that thinks it's airplane i have so much trouble watching this stuff and i guess if you're from that era where pornography was a little bit you had to really go out of your way to get pornography and so stuff like this was almost like the stopgap where you didn't feel bad about it because it was just goofy and look there's boobs fine i have at it i can't sit through it it's not funny the sheer lack of effort on the part of the filmmakers is is what grates on me after a while. I get it. You don't have to do anything. You've got bare boobs, but wow. I mean, you're doing nothing. We, these are terrible jokes, terrible actors. Nothing in this film is convincing. But if we show a pair of bare boobs every 8 to 12 minutes. It's from the school of acting where it's like, okay, stand here and then say your joke real loud. Hey, this is happening now. <laughs> and it's funny. Boobs. It's, it's, ugh, it's so embarrassing. And I don't think that we want to spend more time on trauma garbage than we have to. No, especially when we can move forward and we can discuss this next film, which won a special jury prize at Cannes and is a movie that really has a strong voice it's a lovely little italian film called the night of the shooting stars yeah aka the night of san lorenzo i'd heard the title knew literally nothing about it my entire life until a few weeks ago doesn't it remind you a little bit of cinema paradiso yeah it does a beautiful job of capturing life the community of people coming together for something it deals with a wartime effort but it's not a, i wouldn't would you call it a war movie no, it's more about that weird moment where war is over, but the cleanup hasn't begun because it's they know the Americans are coming. The Germans are still there. They just stop cooperating with the Nazis. It's got a lovely sense of time and place. It's a very nostalgic film, and it's nostalgia that's not based on selling you something. It's nostalgia that's based on this is where the Taviani brothers lived, and this is where they were from. And so I think it's very much a movie about their childhood and them trying to capture that feeling of 
the tide has just turned. Yeah, and there's some real stakes to it too, Drew. Obviously, you know, anybody who dies in a war, that's tragic. But there's something about the idea that the war is now over and people are now like gingerly stepping their toe back into civilization. And it makes their lives seem more precious because you've survived. It would be even more tragic to die that way after uh, peace has already been declared or, or surrender has already been declared and you want to cheer but you're still living in a war zone. We talked a little bit uh, before about Antonioni, and he certainly worked in a period where uh, there was sort of a neo-realism happening in, in Italian films. This is sort of a romantic realism. This was part of a push back towards sort of lush, romantic versions of people's memories. So it's kind of a swing away from that super realistic kind of Italian cinema. There's a very gentle quality to the way the memory works in this movie. It's great. It's not about the war. It's about the people. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. Our next film, I don't even know how you would qualify enjoying or not enjoying or anything, because this is a true oddity called Human Highway. All right, you spud boys, take 88. Get it right. This one is all Drew. <laughs> I, I describe your experience with this film because I, I, I couldn't figure it out. After watching 45 minutes of it, even though I didn't like it, it's got Neil Young, Russ Tamblin, Dennis Hopper, Dean Stockwell. It's got Devo. Neil Young and Dean Stockwell co-directed the film, and he directed it under the name Bernard Shakey, which he also stars in the film under the name of. And Neil Young is largely unrecognizable here. If you don't know Neil Young very well, you might... I wouldn't blame you if you didn't get that he's the guy who plays like this goofy kind of my favorite thing in the movie <laughs> auto mechanic doofus character who works for Dean Stockwell. They work in this little desert town where there's a nuclear power plant. So there's a nuclear holocaust and the entire film kind of takes place in in one long day. Devo plays a major part in the film and Mark Mothersbaugh as bougie boy as the baby masked main character has a real presence in the movie. Uh, there's a lot of big musical numbers, like a 10-minute jam version of My My Hey Hey that's played between Devo and uh, Neil Young. You've got all sorts of crazy stuff in this movie, just weird montage -y stuff. You can't help but look at this and wonder if David Lynch was a fan because so many of the actors that he has worked with are in this one concentrated thing. And to have Russ Tamlin and Dean Stockwell and Dennis Hopper all as sort of co-writers, co-creators of this thing. And it was built around improv. And it was built out of Neil Young kind of wanting to make a film. And he spent about three million bucks and worked on this thing for years. This was not a quick shoot. This was something that it happened in several different stages. And they did all sorts of uh, bits and pieces of shooting. There's a famous incident that occurred where Sally Kirkland had to sue Dennis Hopper because he was playing with a knife and cut one of her tendons on this movie. The thing is, like, if a movie like this came out today and it was full of contemporary musicians and actors, I think I'd be more into it. But when you're digging into the past and you're like, yeah, Dennis Hopper, Neil Young, Dean Stockwell, all people I like watching their experimental stuff, because this is an experimental weird film. It's hard to find like an in. It's hard to find like a grasping point where you can hold on. Now, you want to know a really weird coincidence this week? 
this movie, because Neil Young worked on it for so long, he needed somebody to come in and really kind of manhandle all the stuff into into shape. And so he hired a guy named James Bashirs, who was an editor who had done a lot of other stuff, including The Incredible Melting Man. And he hired him to come in and do all this post-supervision on this. This guy is now one of DreamWorks' like top editors who works on everything. The guy's directing credit was homework. Yeah, the director of homework was the editor and post-production supervisor on Human Highway and the guy that really got it across the finish line in the end. Speaking of homework, that's something that a lot of people in our next film probably had to deal with in between the angst and the joys of being teenagers in 1982. Nobody has more fun than The Last American Virgin. Me? It's about hope. Tonight can really be the big night. And dreams. The highs and lows. You're not going to get anything from me. The ups and downs of growing up. The Last American Virgin. A comedy about friendship, love, and everything in between. The Last American Virgin. See it or be it. This is the movie where if you took the Brundle Chamber from The Fly and you were to put Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Porky's into it, this is the perfect hybrid between those two where it's not as sleazy as Porky's, though it wants to be. And it's not as realistic as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but it wants to be. And it kind of has this weird struggle going on throughout the entire film. It is a remake of the Israeli film Lemon Popsicle, and there was a whole series of those. On one hand, it is about typical early 80s teen hijinks. And on the other hand, like Drew said, it really is trying to infuse some honesty and, and heartbreaking truth about being uh, young fans of the last american virgin know it is the biggest dick punch of an ending of any teen film of the 80s where john hughes never punched anybody in the balls as hard as this does this is an ugly ending it's honest but it's ugly if you're that character and that character who is definitely from the vincent spano ralph macchio school of acting that kid spends his entire movie wanting something and the way this movie treats him at the end is probably honest, but it's also brutal. It is a savage ending, man. Diane Franklin is the, uh, the female lead. Most people would know Diane Franklin as the French foreign exchange student in Better Off Dead. I, I don't love this movie, but there's something about it I like. It's weird casting, too. They, they really cast the kids. All three of them are more real than I think a lot of films from this era. You know, like in Porky's, Every teenager looks 30. You know, if you're trying to make a movie that eventually goes to somewhere honest, uh, it helps to have actors who at least look like regular teenagers. Uh, and I think a lot of this is, you know, leering and puerile and childish. But on the other hand, Boaz Davidson, the writer-director, does seem to have the intent of, yeah, we did have wild, crazy, sexy times in high school, and we also had horrible, miserable, insecure. Now, I don't know if those two tones fit together nearly as well as they do in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Good God, no. But I do think you're right. I think part of this is him trying to undermine the idea that getting laid in high school is sexy and hilarious and fun. He constantly undermines these characters, and it's clear that the main character is terrified. Every time he has a chance to do something, he hesitates and he's afraid to do it, and it is really genuinely for him scary, the the jump into adult sexuality. And so the idea that the movie even tries to play honestly distinguishes it from a lot of the films of this era. And I think it's one of the reasons that the people who are fans of Last American Virgin are very, very fond of it and protective of it. I will say that the soundtrack for this film 
for the first half of the movie, it's amazing. And you think, my God, how did they ever afford this? And it's because it was 1982 and no one knew that soundtracks were important and that you had to pay like insane amounts for them. So a lot of these songs got licensed cheap and they got a lot of really good songs, but they only got enough for half a movie. So then for the rest of the film, they play the songs again. And there comes a point where you've heard the same Lionel Richie song seven times and you just want it to end. And I've never seen it happen before where the music supervisors is like, I don't know, play the Lionel Richie song again. I don't know. I don't have anything else. Drew, when you were a teenager, I bet you listened to Bust a Move more than twice a day. I wasn't releasing a movie, though. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's the point. Is that maybe the point is that teenagers listen to the same songs over and over because they're creatures of comfort and habit and familiarity. You are giving the music supervisor a lot of credit. A lot of credit. All right. So our next film happens to be about moonlighting. The men are not to know what I know. But by sending workmen over from Poland and paying our wages in Schlottis, our boss can have his London house done for a quarter of what he would have to pay a British builder. Which country? Warsaw, Poland. Suspended, right? There was a military coup. A coup? That's right. Didn't you hear the news? No more phone calls from Barbara. No flights home until God knows when. Why did he really choose me? No! Go back to Poland! You, you, you commies! Jeremy Irons, Moonlighting. This is a really good, quiet, odd little movie. Uh, Jeremy Irons is a Polish foreman of a small group of construction workers, three of his relatives. None of them speak any English, and they come to London to refurbish a house for a very important Polish government official who will be moving in. Jeremy Irons, on one hand, trying to acclimate himself into London culture and stay out of the way and be be safe and do his job properly, and trying to be the foreman. They come in with 1,200 pounds total, and he has to make that not only pay for everything, but pay them and last the entire time there, which is fine at first. But watching him navigate that money thing as the film wears on, and they count the job down, starts to get really stressful. And the, the moonlighting of the title refers to the very clever and increasingly more elaborate shoplifting that Jeremy Irons gets into. You think, oh, isn't that clever? Look how he's getting away with it. But he's stealing. That's not cool. Jerzy Skolomowski, the guy that made this film, is a, uh, a fairly important Polish filmmaker and writer. He collaborated with Roman Polanski early in his career on Knife in the Water. He made a series of films uh, in Poland that were largely about his experience as a Polish man. And I think do a really nice job of documenting this sort of shift in Polish culture. This movie is very much about the workers' union revolution that's happening back in Poland while these guys are here. And what I love is that it plays out in microcosm within that apartment because he is clearly Poland. Jeremy Irons is Poland. He just wants to get this fucking job done. And the workers have to understand this is all the money they have and the workers over the, the longer they're there they don't want to do their job they want different things for the job they want their money renegotiated little by little they start to revolt and jeremy irons has to figure out how to hold everything together while at the same time he's aware that back in poland 
This is actually happening. The real workers' revolution is going on, and he doesn't want to tell his guys. Yeah, the solidarity movement has died while they're overseas. So in a way, I mean, not literally, but they're like, now they're men without countries. Flights to Poland have been canceled, so they can't leave. And he is loath to tell them anything true about what's going on. He doesn't want to panic them or anything. Uh, and I, I was expecting this to be a snooze. And boy, was it not. I really got into this movie. You know, it is a direct metaphor for the political uh, situation in Poland, but it could also, you could take it in any form if you wanted to take it outside of the specific political subtext. It could just be a movie about, like, how sometimes corruption is literally inevitable. And Jeremy Irons, he gives such a great performance in this. He speaks Polish fairly fluently throughout the movie, narrates it in English. Uh, the movie is about that feeling of being disconnected. These poor guys... He's literally their only conduit to the outside world. There's, they trust him. They need him to tell them the truth. He need, they need him to be reliable. And watching how he's holding things together and how the pressures are starting to bend and buckle him, I find really compelling. If he gets caught, and we won't say if he does or not, but that leaves three completely lost uh, Polish men who speak not right. a word. What happens if he never comes home? What happens if he just doesn't come home? I love that the three gentlemen who don't speak any English slowly but surely throughout the movie, they build their own quiet little personalities just by watching the way they they break down the house. One of them's kind of a tough nut. The other one's kind of a lovable goofball. The other one's all business. And it's what they want. It's when they go to the stores and you see what they look at. There's a million ways he defines these guys without us having to have character monologues and things. Beautiful moment at the end when they when they realize that um, that, you know, they want their money. They want to get paid. They want to buy, all want to buy a new watch before they leave London. They just want a new watch. Like a real human touch that I really enjoyed. And it's one of those movies that I remember from 1982. I remember hearing critics talk about it, but it was never something that was on my radar at that time. Just remember the VHS cover with like Jeremy Irons crouching. And I thought, oh, I won't like that. And I hope that one of the side effects of this podcast is that we're like breaking down a few doors. If you also were intimidated by uh, Truffaut or Antonioni or or you see a, a small Polish director's film from 1982, Moonlighting is worth your 90-some minutes. All right, so uh, going from one little film to another tiny film that has a big reputation, uh, I don't know how you segue from Moonlighting to the mania of eating Raul. Meet Paul and Mary Bland. You two live in the building. You must swing, right? Wrong. Good night. We're so lucky to have found each other. A typical American couple. I know. Good night, dear. Sweet dreams. With a typical American dream. And typical American problems. You are through at Clay Liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's going to get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting oh, into. With the Blands, life was just a rat race. <laughs> We like B&D, but we don't like S&M. We met at the A&P. But they found a way to beat it. Until... Mr. Raul Mendoza, como esta usted? They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raul. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Yes. But not the type that you're used to. Eating Raul. If you like John Waters' early output, you'll probably like this. It's not quite as pointed 
and not quite as focused. I don't think Bartel was as good a filmmaker, but you're you're right. It's the same school. Seems to be a John Waters inspired social satire about two conservatives who decide to kill the, the sleazy swingers who populate their apartment complex. Only Raul catches wind of them. So they hatch a plan that may or may not involve eating Raul. It's one of those comedies where it's very much about a reaction to the swingers uh, sort of scene. And they play a couple that is, they're largely asexual. They basically just, uh, little kissing's enough. And they keep getting propositioned. And when they are forced to kill a guy who tries to mess with her, and then they go through his wallet, they're having a financial crisis. And they realize there might be a market here in luring scumbag weirdo swingers to their apartment, killing them and taking their money. That sounds more ghoulish than the movie ever actually plays. There's sort of a chipper non-reality to anything. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely takes place on a hyper-reality. There's even a bit uh, where, like, they shock a bunch of people in a hot tub, and they all fall down, like, like tandem. It's all super broad. It's almost a dark cartoon, in a way. Uh, even when it tries to be offensive, it's really not. It's the least shocking shock comedy I can think of from that era, where... It really wants to be outrageous in some ways, despite nudity and despite cannibalism and despite sex. And it's just not that shocking ever. A lot of the jokes don't land because, like you said, Paul Bartel is not quite the filmmaker that that John Waters is. But there's enough amusing gags that B minus pleasantly surprised. I liked it. If you're a Star Trek fan and in particular uh, are a fan of Star Trek Voyager, you probably only know Robert Beltran from that, where he was the first officer. Uh, this is his real launch point. Boy, it will it will blow your mind if that's the only thing you know him from, because this is a pretty different role for him. And I think Beltran, actually, he and Warnov have some interesting chemistry, and there's some fun stuff that happens between them. And when he shows up as Raul, the film kicks into a different gear. I think before that, I didn't quite engage. And then once he's in the mix and you get what the, the mix is, it starts to really work. It's very uh, episodic in the first half. It is. It almost feels like, let's write eight things that bug us about swingers and young people. Just episodic sketches. And then w once the Raul character catches wind of what they're doing, it becomes more interesting. It's not a great cult comedy, but I would I would recommend it. I dug it. Scott, how do you make the transition from eating Raul into this next movie? We are going to now cover a documentary uh, about the making of a film that wasn't released yet, and it's called Burden of Dreams. At the age of 37, German filmmaker Werner Herzog has a worldwide reputation as one of the most talented directors to come out of the movement known as the New German Cinema. In 1977, he ventured deep into the upper Amazon jungle of Peru, scouting locations for a surrealistic adventure film he'd been planning for years, Fitzcarraldo. From the beginning, he expected it to be an extremely difficult project, but it wouldn't be the first time he'd risked everything for new images. In 1971, for instance, he came to the upper Amazon to film Aguirre, Wrath of God, and he and his crew spent weeks living on rafts in the middle of the river. Some critics feel that Herzog seeks out physical danger to test himself. Herzog insists he's a professional taking reasonable risks to create images no one has ever seen before. This time, however, the dangers were so extreme that he invited filmmaker Les Blank to shoot a documentary of Fitzcarraldo being made, as if he were afraid that the documentary might be the only record of his epic adventure. 
join with Herzog, Klaus Kinski, and 800 Peruvian Indians as they risk their lives and their sanity. It's one of the great movies about filmmaking ever made. And I think it's because Les Blank had absolutely unfettered access to Werner Herzog while they're shooting Fitzcarraldo. And so as he's shooting this movie, there's no rules. There's no restrictions. Nobody's telling him what he's allowed to shoot or what he isn't or what he can show or what he can't show. And so... Herzog is a lunatic during the making of this movie. Dude, this movie has Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski. You know, Agira Wrath of God was such a nightmare of a production, and there are stories, nightmare stories about that. The idea that they ever worked together after that blows my mind. But the idea that they worked together repeatedly after that and that he would do something as insane as Fitzcarraldo and then invite Klaus Kinski to be on the set, suicidal. For those who might not know, Fitzcarraldo is about a man who wanted to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle. And then you realize that Burden of Dreams is almost about the exact same thing. Yeah, it is. It's about you want to do something beautiful in a place where you can't. Where if you were to make this movie in L.A., it would be difficult production. If you were to make this movie on location in the Amazon. And it's not like it's today where there's probably some structure to South American film production now that that would support you. This is, let's go into the jungle and literally drag an opera house and a boat over a mountain because that's what they do in the story, so let's do it for real. But aside from location, the film suffered numerous delays. Uh, he lost numerous, several cast members, actors you'd know. It's just one of the most fascinating movies I've ever seen about filmmaking. They could have called this movie Murphy's Law of Filmmaking because everything that could go wrong did i'm fascinated by the way he deals with the indigenous peoples that to me is one of the most exciting things about this movie is watching him how he deals with them how he treats them how he talks to them how he coaxes performance out of them how he i love Werner herzog but he's got some shit that he should answer for over the course of the production of this movie that is just right in front of the camera he doesn't care he this is how he's going to get this film to his credit he allowed Les Blank to make the full documentary of his own. And, you know, another director would be like, yeah, I love it. But could we maybe like lose the 12 seconds where I said that questionable? Nope. It is warts and all. And that just makes it even more interesting. Even if you have never seen Fitzcarraldo, this movie is fascinating. Bird of Dreams will suck you in and you will be amazed that somebody would go to this much trouble for their art. It's a miracle that this thing exists. Pretty sure it's Criterion. Uh, it might be included on the Fitzcarraldo. I don't know. I saw it on No, Hulu. they're standalone, and, and it deserves not to be some other movie's special features. And now we move to one of the best movies of the year. Drew, oh, you take thank it. thank God. Thank God. Uh, you know what? This is the ice cream sundae at the end of a long vegan dinner. And hopefully this will be one of the ones that you guys, if you don't know it already, will go track down and fall in love with because we dearly love My Favorite Year. It was 1954. Television was live, and Benji Stone landed the job of his dreams as a TV comedy writer. It was the year Hollywood's greatest hero swashbuckled his way onto live TV and into Benji's life. He's blasted! Good God, it's Renfield. I thought he was dead. Alan Swan may have been the worst person to look up to, but it was the best time Benji ever had. My favorite year. 
the lovable Mark Lynn Baker in his first film performance plays a uh, junior writer for a live television show called Comedy Cavalcade. And his job is to babysit the drunken, boorish, and very charming Peter O'Toole as Alan Swan, a uh, Aaron Flynn-like figure from Hollywood's golden age. And since this is the 50s, he's kind of a has-been. And Mark Lynn Baker, is, of course, has stars in his eyes. And uh, the rest of the cast of Comedy Cavalcade, which includes the great Bill Macy and a very funny Joseph Bologna, are very skeptical. And boy, is this a fun freaking movie. I, I think it's terrific. And it's about star worship. It's about the idea that we have these stars that we build up in our heads as people and they are a certain something when we see them on the screen. But when we meet them, they often have clay feet, and it can be harrowing. A lot of this is based on the experience on your show shows by young writers like Woody Allen and Mel Brooks, guys who were just starting out in those early days of television. Benji Stone, the Marklin Baker character, has changed his last name so he's less Jewish, so he can sort of blend in. He kind of works as the low man on the totem pole and is willing to eat as much shit as he has to in order to write for television because he genuinely believes this is special. They're also nice to him, which I kind of like. You know, there's like a warmth there. It's like, yeah, he's the young one who has to go get them all coffees and everything, but they are still nice to him. Sure, it's just a ball busting like there would be in any writer's room. It feels like it is a very authentic look back at a moment where television comedy was sort of being created wholesale. I love Joseph Bologna playing King Kaiser. It is clearly based on Sid Caesar. One of the things they get right is that idea that these guys, Sid Caesar, Jackie Gleason, there was an aggressive masculinity about them. They were kind of rough and tumble big guys who the persona was a little bit threatening. And I like that King Kaiser is a two-fisted, take-no-shit kind of character. Oh, yeah. There's a great subplot involving a mafioso played by Cameron Mitchell who takes exception to one of the sketches that they do about a mafia don. Bologna's character, is his reactions are great. That meeting between the two of them where he is making fun of him to his face is one of the best scenes in the film. In most comedies, Drew, what's the joke here? If you have this bombastic comedian and then he's face-to-face with the mafia guy, what's the joke? The big, tough comedian crumbles like a little boy and goes, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, sure, sir. But in this movie, it's, ah, screw him. I'm doing the sketch. I don't care what he says. And he's not afraid. He oh, makes, it's and ten times makes... more. It's the more you come at him, the more he's going to want to do it. And there's that childish thing of digging in. It's like, you can't threaten me off of this. I am going to make fun of you even more because I know now I've got you. I own you because you're bothered by this joke. And if that was the whole movie, that would be great. Or if the whole movie was just Benji trying to keep up with Errol Flynn, who is drinking and fucking his way across New York. That's a good movie. There's also a uh, sweet but kind of dead end subplot in which our hero Benji Stone tries to romance one of the assistants there, Casey Downing. The love interest is played by Jessica Harper. She's written well in the first half. The setup for who Casey is is great. She is way more aware of the way the world works than Benji is, which I like about her. And it almost reminds me of um, the setups in stuff like The Apartment. Like, she's written that well. The second half kind of lets her down, and it's because they end up focusing more on the relationship between Swan and Benji. If the biggest knock on your film is you don't get all three subplots perfectly, you don't really land all three of them, 
Okay. There's um, Selma Diamond has a funny, uh, her God, what a great voice. Lou Jacoby and Lainey Kazan during a big dinner scene that's not all that funny, but it's it's fun to watch. It's fun. I like the family stuff there. I like the, the sense of, I, I like how embarrassed Benji is by his family. And I like that the more embarrassed he gets, the more they can't help but ladle it on because that's who they are. And that's kind of fun. And I like that Swan lets him off the hook there. Swan knows what's happening. And he knows why Benji's embarrassed. And it's sweet the way he treats his mother and the way he treats his uncle and they're kind of boars but they're harmless boars they don't mean it they're just starstruck and he's seen so much of that there's also a tiny little subplot that peter o'toole probably wanted in there about him trying eventually to um reconcile with his estranged little girl who he mentions and maybe goes to visit her but it's it's the, the the fun of the film is that it's supposed to take place over the course of a day and a half and mark lynn baker is meant to keep this adorable but troublemaking movie star out of trouble how would you handle it if your favorite idol was now in your charge and you had to like wag your finger at bill murray you know like how would you handle that it's clearly done in like a fable fairy tale style. It's there's no bad people in this movie. Even the bad guys are kind of amiable. There's a moment about a half an hour into this where Peter O'Toole asks a woman to dance and she's celebrating her 40th anniversary and her husband asks Swan to go over and say something to her. He goes above and beyond. He takes her out to the dance floor and the film stays with them for the entire dance. And he never says a word once they start dancing. He never takes his eyes off of her. And this woman who's in her 60s, and not a mo- not one of the stars of the film, just a, somebody who's in that one scene, she melts while they dance. And watching his face and the way that he smiles at her and the way he adds flourishes to the dance and the way he makes it feel like the entire world has faded away except for her, that's the reason Peter O'Toole is a movie star. And Peter O'Toole kills in that. It's a great performance. As you well know, he was nominated for this and uh, this is far and away the best uh, effort directorially by actor turned director Richard Benjamin, in my opinion. Well, he really worked as a page at NBC, and you've got to imagine that part of this is he feels a real affection for this moment and knows what it felt like to be there. I absolutely love my favorite year. It would make us very happy if uh, this would be your pick of the month. Please let us know, because that is the fuel that keeps us going. We are going to be back in just two weeks with a very strange lineup. October 1982 isn't the punishment September is, but it is a weird lineup of films. We are going to have several horror comedies, and you'll be the judge as to whether or not any of them are funny. We're going to have a young Diane Lane performance that is well worth discussion. We are going to have an Armand Desant performance in a movie that is not worth discussion. And we're going to have one of the weirdest sequels of the entire decade, as well as not one, but two Ted Kacha films. Holy shit, what's going on in October of 1982? (laughs) Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog.